Uh, so think of the most important decisions that you have ever made. Think of the most important decisions you have ever made in your life. I mean, you like reflect on those. What, uh, maybe you have like some examples in your head. I encourage you to like determine what those examples are. When I was a, a child, right, like when I was y- much younger than I am now, I did not really understand what it meant to have very important decisions. However, I did have like some important decisions as a kid, right? Like one, one of the decisions that I thought was very important for me is like what are my kind of extracurriculars going to be? How am I going to decide my extracurricular activities? Because I had this habit as a kid to like be involved in everything. And my parents kind of forced me to say, hey, it's not realistic for you to do everything. And so you kind of have to pick some things to focus on when you do this. So uh, so extracurriculars, maybe when I uh, grew up and I became like student high school, uh, moving into college, the big decision that I had to make was what is my college major going to be? And then I made that decision a second time and then a third time after that. So, uh, so yeah, another big decision. And then uh, the third, uh, another decision I had to make, like I become an adult moving out of college, right? Like uh, one, like purchasing a home. Nothing in my life has made me feel like, oh, I'm going to die if I sign all these papers, right? Like, then signing the paperwork to, like, go into the title company and sit there for two hours and, like, paper after paper after paper. And you you really feel the gravity of the situation when you decide to buy a home. Or uh, coming up with a profession, right? Like, there's a decision-making process to decide on what that's going to be for you. Uh, My spouse, it's a major decision in my life. Who is my spouse going to be, right? Uh, that all of that is, are those are major decisions. So as you think about what those decisions might be for you, no matter what place in life you find yourself, I ask a question, uh, basically along the lines of what did it take for you to make that decision? Like what kind of went into you arriving at the point where you were able to make that decision? Right? I, I would suggest that it actually, like, it took a little bit of process. It took a little bit of time. So, like, just take spouse, for example. Like, I did not marry or decide to marry Andrea the moment that I met her. Uh, right? Like, I, that just didn't happen. There was a process of us getting to know each other and understand, like, uh, kind of who the other person was, what we were interested in, how we kind of organized our life, what our values were. Like, it takes time to figure out those things. The decision doesn't come instantaneously in the journey, right? So uh, this is kind of what I want to present to you this morning, because as you think about those major decisions, this is kind of what I want to give for us to chew on. Our most significant decisions never come at the beginning of a journey. Our most significant decisions never come at the beginning of a journey, right? They're always uh, kind of the result of some process that we have gone through, right? So, uh, so they take time, right? Uh, right? So from one perspective, the decision for me to study Uh, my major in college, communication and music production, which was the major that I finally landed on. Like, you could say that in all reality, that that landing on that major was the result of a 12 to 15 year journey in which I learned, 
and I observed, right? Like my brother was very involved in music. I got interested in music because he was interested in music, right? And so that kind of led me to this place where I started gaining knowledge and insight about what it means to be a performer, what it means to, uh, to you know, grow in the realm of my musical skill. Uh, I had my passions for music stirred up over this period. I had tons of kind of meaningful interaction with the subject matter. And then all of that eventually resulted in when I ended up in college, after I made my first and my second decision, I finally landed on my third decision of a degree in communication and music production. Right, so, so that did not come at the beginning of the journey. It was kind of the result of a journey or it happened in the process of the journey. Okay, so, so take that concept, that concept that says like our most significant decisions never come at the beginning of a journey and I want you to hold on to it because that is going to be really important for us as we kind of walk into this next series. So today we are starting a new series called How Jesus Made Followers. Right? And, and what we're going to do in this series is we are going to watch Jesus as he goes and he interacts with uh, people. And those people are drawn from the point of being casual observers to being engaged followers. And then from the point of being engaged followers to those who are actually like carrying out the work of Jesus and doing the things that Jesus would do in the world. Right, so we're going we're gonna to kind of examine Jesus' process and try to learn from him what we can. And, and here's like our context that we're walking into uh, just observing Jesus with. Like we just talked last week about sharing tables, especially sharing tables with people who don't yet know Jesus or people we want to see drawn to Jesus. Right? And the goal of this whole process would be that our tables would become tables where people would meet with Jesus. Perhaps even that our tables would be tables where people learn to trust and follow Jesus. Right? And so it's actually really timely that we get this opportunity to look at Jesus and how he made followers and what we can learn from him. So in John chapter 1, verse 35 is where we are going to start. John 1, 35. This is what it says. It says, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. So uh, John and Andrew are the two disciples here. So uh, Andrew and John the, the Apostle, not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle. Uh, and we can kind of infer that John works really hard to avoid naming himself anywhere that he uh, writes about himself in his uh, gospel. And so, uh, so we know that Andrew is one of these guys, and it, it, there's a high likelihood that John is the other disciple that's standing here. And this is what goes on with Andrew and John in verse 36. It says, And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. This is John the Baptist speaking to John and Andrew. Behold the Lamb of God. And then it goes on just a little bit further past verse 36 and in verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? All right, so if we could just leave this up here for just a second, we're going to work through a few different things. So the first thing to notice is that Jesus does not give them, like, a bunch of information that they need to memorize, does not give them some, like, uh, amazing presentation of uh, the significant things about who he is and what they need to, like, learn and gain from him in this moment. No, what he does is he asks them a question. 
right? Like he's trying to get them to evaluate themselves. He's kind of trying to ask them to process where they're coming from. And like, there's just a note to be said here as we watch Jesus and what he does as he interacts with people who are, are trying to understand who he is. He asks them a lot of questions. In fact, Jesus more often asks direct questions of people when they approach him than he does make statements to them. Right? Like he, he helps them think about the things of God and who God is. And so Jesus asks them a question. That's the first thing to notice. The second thing to notice is this. We need to notice who Jesus is and why it is appealing to them. Right? So there are two titles for Jesus used right here in this section. One of the titles is Lamb of God and the other title is Rabbi. Both of these titles are related to uh, John and Andrew's involvement in the ministry of John the Baptist, right? Because uh, John the Baptist had been talking about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They would have become very familiar with this. What did they come doing, John and Andrew? Well, if you remember, we just did a couple of weeks on John the Baptist a few weeks ago. But John the Baptist was all about repentance. He was all about cleansing, that even Israelites, who were supposed to be these people who had uh, things of God all figured out, that even Israelites needed to be cleansed. And so he baptized them into this repentance process, which tells us something about John and Andrew, that they are concerned about the problem of sin, right? Like they have this concern inside of them. And, and good Jews know that repentance isn't enough, right? They need forgiveness, they're aware of the sacrificial processes. They're aware of the things that God instilled. And so, so baptism and repentance for them is one half of the equation. The other half of the equation is that they, like, they need forgiveness. They need to be forgiven. And so when they hear the title, Lamb of God, it's going to bring up messages to them about the forgiveness that is done through the slaying of a lamb and the process of Passover and the process of the sacrificial system. Right? So, so that's one title that kind of immediately pops out to them and says, well, this, there's this half of the equation that we don't have solved. And oh, the Lamb of God might have something to do with solving that. So they need to find forgiveness. And the second thing to notice is that they call him rabbi. And uh, for what it's worth, like this is how John's disciples referred to him. Right? This is the title that John's disciples used for them because John had walked them through a process of shaping their thinking and helping them to understand. And, and so they come from this context of being in John the Baptist's ministry to now coming to Jesus. And they're essentially like they're looking for him to continue that process. Now, why did I spend that time laboring to help you understand like the way these titles related to kind of how they were going to interact with Jesus? Well, there's something to notice here, and that is that aspects of Jesus's character meet their unique needs, right? uh, John and Andrew are kind of in the middle of their situation. They're involved in John the Baptist ministry, and they both have kind of a unique need, a unique situation. And Jesus comes, and uh, kind of these titles are given to him, and, and they're encouraged to follow him in this very unique way with these unique ways of addressing him. So, so what does John the Baptist do? He says, look, behold, there he is. He's right there the unique answers that you are looking for, the things that you've been processing, all of that is found in him. And so they decide to follow him. So verse 39, he said to them, come and you will see. 
So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. When Jesus says, come and you will see, uh, we could probably very easily think seeing with the eyes. But the word that is used here for see is actually quite a different word than seeing with the eyes. It's seeing to understand. Um, as if you, you know, you're interacting with somebody and they tell you about something that happened and you say, oh, I see. You're not saying, oh, I physically witnessed that with my eyes, but you're saying, oh, I'm grasping what you're saying, right? And so when Jesus says, they say, where are you staying? Jesus says, come and you will see. And it's very natural to think that he's saying, like, come and you will, like, witness the place where I'm staying. But what Jesus actually says is, no, come and you will gain understanding. You will kind of be able to grasp something significant. Come and you will see. So at this point, they're getting to know Jesus. And not only that, but they're, like, curious about who he is. They want to know where he's staying. They're trying to understand At this point, though, they have, like, made no major life commitment to Jesus. They're just, like, they're curious. They're trying to understand. They've just now, at this point, started spending time with him. Like, this is the beginning of their journey. Okay, so then let's go back and pick up on our idea from the beginning. Remember, that idea is this. Our most significant decisions never come at the beginning of a journey. So uh, let's take this concept and relate it to our gospel influence on others. Often what we do is we put pressure on ourselves to share the gospel in such a way so that the people that we are talking to will convert by the time we finish talking to them. Right? Like that's really what we're aiming to do. We, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves because we want to create a conversion. We put our energy into tracking professions of faith and conversions in our church, right? And uh, we celebrate conversions, and they're a great thing to celebrate. We ask that the question all the time. You know, when we're talking about people we interact with, with other, you know, Christian brothers and sisters, the question comes up well, are they a believer? You know, like that comes up frequently. We learn tools in order to find like the simplest ways that we can to speak the gospel and practical, quick ways to invite people to convert. And that is all really, really good and all has its place. But what is conversion? Is it not a significant decision? Is it not, in fact, as many of us in this room would say, the most significant decision that you could ever make in your life? Right? That's what conversion is. And so like, I just want to kind of give you a picture of a process of how we kind of think of the Christian journey. And start over here. I want you to imagine like we're, we're building kind of a linear tale, right? The journey starts in our mind, how we typically think of conversion. The journey starts with conversion, Right? Like that's where we start. And then from conversion, we kind of move to uh, this place that we like to call belonging. Right? Now that you're a Christian, you belong to the family of God. You find a church to be a part of, and we invite you in to that church. So we've started with conversion, we've moved now to belonging, and then from your belonging, you know what is really good to do. It's really good that you get discipled 
by somebody. So you move from now from conversion to belonging to discipleship, where you start to kind of do the things that Jesus would do. You start to kind of live your life in the way that Jesus would see you live by the power of the Holy Spirit. We see sanctification and all of this start to happen. And then from this place of discipleship, once you've progressed far enough, you might move into the realm of a service, right? Learning to use your spiritual gifts, uh, learning to kind of take care of things with uh, the body of Christ, learning to serve those in your community. And then maybe like from this place of service, you then progress on to, you know what? There's like a possibility that you could make significant impact, right? So you start all the way over there with conversion and you kind of walk through this process, belonging and then discipleship and then service. And now you're ready to make and impacts. That's typically how we think of kind of the Christian journey. And here's the struggle, is that we have taken the most significant decision and put it at the very beginning, right? In that whole process, we have taken kind of the most significant decision that we say any person can make, and we say that's the beginning of the journey. It's over here. This is where the journey starts. But what if uh, in that process we kind of reframed our thinking? What is, so what does Jesus do with John and Andrew? Like, John and Andrew don't start with leaving everything to follow him. John and Andrew don't actually even start at their conversions, right? They start at the point of curiosity, And Jesus, at that point, does not give them a full gospel presentation. They have pieces of who Jesus is and understandings of who he is, but they don't have the whole thing. And Jesus invites them to come and see, to spend the day with him. Right, so... um, So I want to kind of challenge this framework that we tend to view things in. And like, I say this, and I've known this for some time, and I even like get into the realm of thinking, okay, we start with conversion, then we progress to belonging, and then to discipleship. Like kind of, there's a very linear process here. But I want you to imagine, uh, instead of having that very linear process, that instead of trying to make a line, what we're trying to make is like a snowball. Uh, so Calvin and Hobbes, I don't know if we have any Calvin and Hobbes fans in here. If not, there might be, like, there might be a few of us. Uh, I'll tell you the story of Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, the, there's this question about how to make a perfect snowball. And, uh, and Calvin says that the perfect snowball is made, and I have to thank Pastor Don for, for cluing me into this. I do have to throw that out there ahead of time. Pastor Don, help me uh, put this one together. Uh, a perfect snowball is the perfect combination of uh, snow with the right kind of uh, liquidity, right, like, right amount of water in it, and mud and stones, right? The, that's a perfect snowball. It's the perfect combination of, of snow and water and mud and, and stones so that when you throw the snowball, it doesn't just like hit the person and evaporate into nothing, but you throw the snowball and it hits, you feel the impact, and then it like just kind of hangs there. Like the results of the snowball hitting you are still there, right? Okay, so like let's talk about the perfect snowball because there's the, the, the mud and the rocks in the middle, but then you have kind of the thing that is holding it together, which is the really wet snow. I want us to challenge our thinking from this whole kind of linear equation and turn it into a snowball. And I want our really, really wet snow to be this thing that we call discipleship. Right? I want our really, really wet snow to become this thing that we call discipleship. 
right? So inside the snowball, there can be all of these different ingredients, right? One of those ingredients might be, you know, belonging in the community. I would suggest to you belonging in a community is a very significant part of that thing called discipleship, right? But one of those, like one of those ingredients somewhere in that snowball is going to be conversion, right? And it, so if we think linearly, we're trying to guess, okay, where on the line is conversion going to happen? And what you say is, no, like, don't think about the line. Think about the ingredients of discipleship. What accounts for discipleship? And then just know that as you kind of work on discipleship, somewhere in that process, conversion is going to take place, right? Like your conversion has to happen somewhere in that framework. Here's why I want to kind of challenge that framework. Call the whole thing discipleship and say, hey, you know, in there, service can start to happen. In there, belonging can start to happen. In there, impact can start to happen. And yes, certainly in there somewhere, conversion will occur. This is why I want to change that thinking. Because Jesus's disciples had far more context than most people do today for what the things of faith are. And this was Jesus' process with his disciples. Right? Jesus was discipling them before they ever believed. Right? Jesus was kind of forming their impressions about who he was and kind of building on to uh, different ways of their thinking and reframing things for them before he ever gets to the point or before they ever get to the point of converting. And what's really interesting is you go even further past that point Like, do you know how long it takes Jesus to tell his disciples that to follow him means that they need to die to themselves and take up their cross? They've been walking with him for two years. Two years of them seeing and understanding and being drawn to and being compelled by Jesus until Jesus finally says, actually, I tell you that to follow me is to take up your cross and die to yourself. Right? And that process gives them time to build and to understand and to be compelled by Jesus. He spent years reshaping their ways of thinking and being in the world. And we can call the whole thing discipleship and know that somewhere in that process, for 11 of those disciples, conversion took place. Okay, so let's watch him now work out this process with some other people. And this is really kind of the beginning of the process that we get to watch him work out. This is, uh, we're going to be talking about kind of different steps and ways to process kind of all of discipleship where it's not just discipleship or it's conversion before discipleship, but that conversion is a natural part of discipleship. We're going to be talking about that over the next uh, three weeks after this. But right now we're kind of just focusing on this beginning step. So verse 40, John 1:40 says this. One of the two who heard John the Baptist speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So then verse 41, it says, He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So with Andrew and John, kind of the title, the title that helped uh, them to grab onto Jesus was the Lamb of God. With Peter, it's this idea of Jesus as Messiah, right? So the Messiah literally means the anointed one. For Peter, this was the long-awaited king of Israel, right? The one who was coming to kind of restore Israel to its greatness, the one who was coming to bring God's rule of righteousness and justice, right? All of that was in line with Peter's thinking. So this awareness for Peter, like, it's very simple and clear. All, all Andrew has to say is, hey, we found the Messiah, and Peter's on board, 
right? He's sticking around to see if this might be true because if he's the Messiah, he's like, well, that's kind of worth sticking around for, right? So in verse 42, it says, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which like, for what it's worth, Cephas, which means Peter. Uh, That's not a common name at this time. Jesus is giving Peter a nickname, and that nickname is kind of like calling him Rocky or Rock. Hey, Rock. How's it? Like, it's, it's to say, you're not that bright, are you? I don't know that that's actually what he's saying, right? But like the idea is he's, he has this kind of stubborn uh, confidence about him. And, uh, and so Jesus calls him, hey, Rocky, how's it going? Yeah, he gives him this nickname. But what's interesting, we watch, uh, we watch Andrew now reach out to his brother Peter and say, hey, Peter, we've been spending this time with John the Baptist. I know you've been off doing your thing, but I want to tell you, John has introduced us to the Messiah, which means that you need to come with us. And so he brings his brother. There's, uh, so another piece, because with each of these stories, we're going to find another piece of how Jesus kind of works to make followers. Jesus works through relational networks, right? That's kind of what he's doing. He's working through Andrew or Andrew to get to Peter. And this is not surprising that Jesus works through relational networks since the two greatest commands that he gives us are to love, to love God and to love our neighbors, right? This is not a surprising thing. And so kind of the takeaway for us should be like, Maybe some of us need to strengthen our relational networks with people who do not believe like we believe, right? Because if Jesus works through relational networks and accomplishes his work through relational networks, and I'm talking to myself on this too, I've had to take some significant steps because a pastor spends a lot of time with Christians and has responsibility for Christians and doesn't have a great opportunity, if I'm not intentional, to be invested in the lives of other people, right? So I've had to take some intentional steps to, to say, you know what, if Jesus works through relational networks, I've actually got to like, start loving people who don't yet know Jesus, Right? I've got to build that relational network. So, like, I just think about how did I come to Jesus and learn to follow him? Like, what does that process look like? Well, number one, my parents took me to church early on. That was one piece. Uh, number two, uh, when I was, like, 12 years old, I got invited by a friend, relational network, to a middle school retreat, right, where somebody shared the gospel and I trusted in Jesus. Um, Uh, Number three, uh, when I was in high school, I wasn't really super involved in going to church, right? But a friend invited me to a Wednesday night church service that started like my love of scripture. First time I ever heard somebody preach uh, the Bible kind of verse by verse and understood what it meant, right? Like all of that happened, significant places in my life that kind of moved me along this path of discipleship. It all happened through relational networks. If none of those people existed, if none of those people extended an invitation to me, I never ended up in those places, And as you think about your own story, you can probably think about the relational networks that were involved in your life that ended up bringing you to Jesus. All right, so then we're going to move to the next part of the story. The next person that he calls, uh, John 1, 43. says, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Right, like that didn't take very long. It was just very straightforward. He doesn't have like, he doesn't need a title or anything like that. He just comes along and Philip sees him and he says, hey, Philip, uh, I've got some people following me. You want to, like, you should follow me too, right? 
So uh, another takeaway from this, just to pick it up and kind of understand and grasp, like clear invitations create the biggest opportunities. I think a lot of us miss this, right? Like we kind of use a lot of words to talk about our faith and use a lot of like... uh, kind of, we need to think we need to get all the theology right and figured out as we talk to our friends and neighbors about Jesus, and good theology is important, but you know, like, what is really, really good is just to give people a clear invitation to something, right? And that's what, that's what affects Philip's life for the rest of his life. He gets this clear invitation, and clear invitations create the biggest opportunities, and so notice two things about this invitation. Number one, that the invitation is very simple, right? Like, this is for what it's worth, this is before the disciples actually become disciples. There's a process after this where Jesus is going to go up and spend the night in prayer and ask God, like, who, who should be the 12 that you're calling me to have? But that's not at this moment. This is just a simple invitation to, hey, like, come see what I'm doing. Follow me. All right, so that's the first thing to notice. It's very simple. And the second thing to notice is that every person gets a different kind of invitation. That's very interesting. Like some, Jesus says, come and see. Another, he says, follow me. Uh, some others get an invitation from John that say, behold. Uh, the, the story about Andrew and Peter, it says that Andrew, like basically the, the impression that I get is that he like dragged Peter to Jesus, right? That's, so the invitation looks different for different people. So you may notice at this point, like Jesus is not giving kind of a really clear gospel presentation. He's not sharing uh, the four spiritual laws. He's not making sure that they know everything they need to know about him. He's starting with this place of connecting with each of them, specifically and individually, in the way that he knows that they need. Right? He's understanding who they are. He's understanding what they need, and he's extending invitations to them. Uh, they're kind of responding to different titles about him in different ways. And so this is what we need to notice is happening with people following Jesus. Jesus is actually practicing this thing called contextualization. It's a big word. I want you to sit with me in it for just a second, though. Contextualization. This is a missionaries get trained for hours and hours on this one thing, how to contextualize, right? So if I could boil contextualization down for us, it is this. It's the process of understanding people in order to understand how to bring the life of Christ to bear on their lives, right? It is understanding people to understand their needs, where they're coming from, how Jesus is best going to meet them in the situations that they're in, right? Like missionaries have to understand how to live with and speak in a way that tangibly brings the life of Christ to bear on the cities and villages and communities, right? For what it's worth, Right now, like today, pastors in Ukraine are defending the defenseless. They're helping people escape and flee to safety. Pastors in Ukraine have made the decision that they're going to stay behind and proclaim the gospel to those who are struggling. Why? Because they're contextualizing to where they live. Right? They're speaking of a Jesus who defends us or who defended us when we were hopeless in our battle with sin. And so we're going to stand here and defend the defenseless and share uh, kind of the good news of a Jesus who defends the defenseless with us. Right? So how do you do this well? Like how do you contextualize? How do you recognize the various situations and understand how Jesus steps in? Well, number one, I would tell you it, it only comes with practice. 
right? Like you have to do it and then do it again and you have to fail at it first a few times and a few different times and then you have to kind of go to somebody else and understand them and, and try to see, okay, Jesus, how do you meet in this situation? And uh, Thank the Lord you had the power of the Holy Spirit in you, showing you, helping you notice those things, helping you see how Jesus meets those particular situations, right? So only through practice and only through strong relationships, but I will give you kind of three um, helpful steps to, to start your journey of contextualization. Number one, you want to listen for the place of felt need or desperation. As you interact with the individuals that the Lord is calling you to kind of impact, right, you need to do a very good job of listening, which means listening, active listening, involves not just hearing what they're saying and not just nodding along, but actually like asking really good questions, helping them go deeper, right, trying to understand them. So listen for the place of felt need or desperation. Number two, and this one is very, very important, be willing to show up to the need. You ever notice how many times people will start to let their pain leak out in their words? And how many people will then change the subject or avoid digging into that thing because they don't want an awkward situation? Right? That's not what we do. When people let their pain leak, when people are trying to show you what's going on inside of them, we listen to them and then we show up to that need. Tell me more about that. What... What is it like to deal with that pain? Where is that, like, where did that struggle start at that you're talking about, right? Show up to the need. And then number three, and this takes a process. You could bounce between one and two for a long time before you ever get to the point. This takes discernment to figure out that it actually might be the right time to step into three, Right, So you keep listening and you keep showing up to the need. And then eventually, with all of our people that we're trying to impact, we want to speak in a way that helps them see Jesus' connection to their need. Right? We want to we wanna speak, and we even want to like live our lives in such a way. Part of what it means to show up to the need, if somebody is like dealing with an urgent, like present need, we show up physically with our bodies and serve them in some way. Right, But then we also show up with our words in a way that helps them see Jesus' connection to that need. All right, so I want you to take that as a tool, and that's one of the things that we're going to see Jesus do time and time again, because people are letting their, their pain and their sense of desperation leak all over the place, and Jesus is not just ignoring it, but he shows up to those needs time and time again, and he actually tangibly connects to it. And that's one of the things that we need to start learning to do as well. So then he goes on in, in verse 44, he says this. Now, Philip, this is our final, our, our final two, folk, or sorry, final folk, uh, Philip. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Notice, he's still like cluing us in. John, the writer, is still cluing us into the reality of these relational networks, right? Uh, Philip is not just uh, from Bethsaida, and that's just not like generally out there, but there's kind of this connected relationship to Andrew and Peter that gets mentioned here. Then verse uh, 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So what is clear is that Philip knows Nathanael. They have a relationship here. And it's interesting, like a lot of the explanations for who Jesus is up to this point, they've been very simple. 
this one is not very simple, right? This one has a lot of words in it. This one is quite complex, right? He gives him a more complex explanation of Jesus. And the reason is that seems to be more in line with Nathaniel's character, how he processes life. Like Nathaniel knows scripture deeply, Right, Nathaniel is actively seeking the promises of Scripture that have been made throughout history. He is actively seeking those things to be fulfilled. The thing, like, that about Jesus would be compelling for him is that God's word has been pointing to Jesus all along in each of these intricate ways. And Nathaniel is very interested in that, right? So it very clearly meets him where he's at. And then in verse 46, it says this. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now we think like uh, this is kind of like a joke. He's making a jab and he is making a bit of a jab. But like there are two things to notice about this. Number one, Nathanael, because he knows scripture so well, knows that the Messiah is not coming from Nazareth. He's coming from Bethlehem. Right? He's read the scriptures and he knows that that's where the Messiah is coming from. When, uh, when he is told that he's coming from Nazareth, he's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. And then he throws in this little jab about Nazareth because he knows, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He has this idea. And so Philip is like, well, wait, wait, wait. Don't let, I'm not going to try to explain all of this to you. Like, Just come and see. And by the word, that word, see, not see with your eyes, see to understand. See to grasp. So verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Jesus, at this point, he is remarking on the character and faithfulness of Nathanael, which is really significant, and I'll tell you why in just a second. Verse 48. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. What is Jesus saying? What is this whole thing about under the fig tree? The fig tree is a messianic symbol. Right, so the promise of the messianic age is this. Everyone will sit under their own vine and fig tree with no one to frighten them. The land will be at peace. The people who are occupying the land will be gone. And to the extent that like individual Israelites will own their own personal property and not have to worry about somebody coming and taking that away from them. This is the promise of peace that comes with the Messiah, right? And they're going to tend to and care for that land. And, and so there is a high likelihood that this is what Jesus was talking about. Because like while many Israelites talked about their expectation for the Messiah, like there, there's a good chance that Nathaniel actually prayed constantly and fervently for it. And he would likely go out to the fig tree, remembering that it is this symbol of what the Messiah is going to accomplish for Israel. And so he would go to that place. That would be his like spot to go and meditate and spend time with the Lord and pray to the Lord because he was kind of full on. He knows that God keeps his promises and he wanted to see God keep this promise and he wanted to see that deliverer, that Messiah come very, very soon. And when Jesus says, like, 
You know, all these other people talk about the Messiah. I know that you are actually concerned about it. I know that there's no deceit in you when you talk about your expectation of the Messiah. Because you spend day after day out by that fig tree. And for what it's worth, this fig tree, I would guess that nobody else knew about the fig tree. That this was a thing that Nathaniel did. He would go out there and he would spend time with his God and he would say, to his God, uh, expectant prayers about the Messiah. He would spend hours fervently praying, and his fervent hope in God was tied up in this time that he spent there praying under that fig tree with him and God. And so then what does Jesus say to him? Before Philip ever came along, Nathaniel, when you pray under that fig tree, I see you. This is not just a simple noticing. For Nathaniel, when Jesus says this, what he hears, which is far different from what anybody else hears, Nathaniel, I am the God who sees. I'm the only one who can see you. I am the one you are praying to, the one that you've been praying for. So how does Nathaniel respond? Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, You are the son of God. There's no other explanation for how you know what's going on there. You are the king of Israel. He instantly responds with recognition. You are the one who has come with divine authority. When he calls him the son of God, to, to be the son of a greater ruler is to say that you have the same kind of authority and employ the same kind of authority as the one who is greater than you, right? So to say he is the son of God means to say that he has all of the divine authority that God has. And so then in verse 50, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So after all of the invitations to come and see, Jesus says this like little bit at the end, essentially like, just wait, you haven't seen anything yet. So here's the thing. I think that we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to see conversion take place and how we kind of like minister to and witness to our friends and neighbors. But it's worth noting that even Jesus did not say make converts. He said make disciples, right? Go and disciple them, teach them about me, the things that I've commanded you. So this morning, actually, I think this is an incredibly freeing thing. Right, Because we feel this pressure to put people on the spot to make the most important decision of their lives. And I think it's freeing to know like, that actually discipleship is just showing them another aspect of who Jesus is and showing them another aspect of who Jesus is. So I want to simplify gospel witness for us this morning. I want to encourage us to start where Jesus starts. Now, for what it's worth, like, The time to invite somebody to believe in Jesus, it is there, and that is something that we should be oriented towards, right? But this morning, I want to encourage us to start where Jesus starts. Following Jesus starts with opportunities to simply see Jesus, right? Can you give opportunities to your friends and your neighbors to simply 
see Jesus? Like, what if we viewed those friends and neighbors that the Holy Spirit has laid on our hearts, like those he's called us to influence, what if we viewed them as those that we are engaging in a discipleship process, right? And so our job is to simply show them something about Jesus that they haven't yet considered, right? To help them see Jesus in a way that might change their thinking one or two degrees, right? Because that's what happened with many of us until the day that we said, okay, Jesus, you get everything. Okay, so what? So what? Number one, if Jesus works through relational networks, our tables become strategic work zones. I'm not going to stop talking about the table thing as much as you might want me to. I'm going to be talking about it a lot from this point forward, okay? If, if Jesus works through relational networks, like our tables are the place where we form stronger relational bonds with people, right? We get to know them better. There's a level of intimacy that people are willing to enter into deeper conversation, willing to know you in a deeper way, willing to reveal more about themselves that they haven't yet revealed, right? Ta- tables become really strategic places where Jesus' work is going to get accomplished, or at the very least, where that relational bond becomes strong enough to bear the weight of increasing gospel proclamation in that case. Right? So, so if, uh, we need to let our tables become kind of the strategic work zones. And then finally, as we close this morning, my last so what is this. All of us need to receive the invitation to see Jesus. Like, there are times when we can be thinking, like, oh, I'm doing Jesus' work now. Right? Like, I have to worry about inviting people to see him. And actually, like, Jesus never stops extending the invitation to us to see him and to see more of him. Right? It is the thing that he continues. Like, we never graduate after, uh, out of the reality of simply seeing Jesus for who he is. Right? Like it is this constant invitation to come and see and to come and see again. And he keeps extending it to us. Come and see another facet of who I am that you haven't yet considered, right? No matter where we're at, kind of in this discipleship process, come and see his miracles. Right? Come and see my heart for the hurting and the helpless. Come and see my faithfulness to my people. Come and see my perfect character. Come and see my mercy for a dead girl who I'm going to bring back to life. Come and see my attitude towards the outcasts. Come and see my desire to forgive those who need forgiveness. My willingness to become a sacrifice for sin. My victory in my resurrection. The invitation that he constantly extends to each of us still today. Even as we are engaged in extending the invitation, he invites us, come and see. And thank the Lord that he graciously continues to extend this invitation to us. If you're not a Christian this morning, or if you're considering Christianity, I just, like, I want to give you an invitation. I want, I want to invite you, uh, typically what a uh, pastor would do in this situation is they would say, if you've never trusted in Jesus or you never believed in Jesus, now's the time to believe in Jesus. And if that's you, like, I want you to believe in Jesus right now. Hear me on that. But maybe you're not at that point. I want to ask you, like, Simply pay attention to Jesus. Like, pay attention to the things that he does. Pay attention to the things that he teaches. Maybe, like, 
start doing some of the things that he says we should do, right? Like, you don't have to have everything figured out at this point, but why not see if the kind of life that Jesus advocates for can be abundant and good? Like, why not actually see if it's true? So that would be my invitation to you this morning, is that just as all of us are called to come and see Jesus, right? if you haven't trusted Jesus or you don't believe him, just come and see him. That's the invitation that's extended this morning. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, you are so, so good. The beauty of the ways that you interact with various people, that you uh, adjust yourself, you recognize uh, the different needs that they have, and so you uh, show them a different aspect of who you are because you know it's what's needed in that specific situation. Thank you for instructing us on this, helping us to understand the ways that you interact with different people. Lord, teach us to think intentionally about those that we're interacting with. Teach us to listen really well. Teach us to be those who show up to to the needs that are presented, that don't just gloss over them, that don't just avoid talking about them because uh, we don't want to create an awkward situation. Lord, but help us to show up in the ways that you show up. And Lord, help us more than anything else to just simply see who you are, to see, to understand, to grasp the different aspects of your character that we so easily miss out on. Lord, that we might actually receive something from the invitation that you're extending to us, that it wouldn't like become this thing that's driving us to, to simply minister to other people, but that we would actually like sit with you and observe you and uh, stand in wonder of you and worship you for the things that you've done, that we would see and grasp you, and that it would be so richly shaping our hearts. Jesus, I thank you for these people. I thank you for uh, the gift of your word to instruct us and shape us. Thank you for these stories that we have of the ways that you, that it's so accessible to us to see your character so clearly, to see uh, the different ways that you interacted with people, to have your teachings given directly to us. Thank you for your word. Help us to to walk with it, to to drink deeply of your character and help shape us into the men and women that you desire us to be. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd invite you to stand as I read our benediction. Church, we are caught up in a call to simply show more of Jesus to more people. So with that being the case, I want you to hear these words from Romans chapter 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Alliance Bible Church, thank you so much for worshiping with us this morning. It's been a privilege and an honor to worship with you.